This is the Mental Health Movement Podcast, Voice for the Voiceless, a weekly podcast hosted by Chris Milson, a podcast to help break the stigma of mental health and to remind everyone that it is okay to be not okay, and to remind those that they are never alone. Please also note that Chris is not a psychologist or psychiatrist and is speaking from research and experiences. Trigger warning for those for the possible explicit content and language. So, what's up, everybody? Uh, my name is Trent McPherson. Uh, I'm an intern at NAMI Pitt County, and welcome to the uh, men's mental health event. Well, it's not really an event, it's more like a discussion because I don't really want to call it an event um, because I want it to be more like an open discussion with us four and then also the chat. So, if anybody, anytime in the chat wants to get involved, please do. Seriously, please do. You're not discouraged, you're encouraged. It's a discussion for everybody. We all have our own experiences and we want to hear everybody's stories. So please, please, please speak up if you um, get the courage to. All right, and um, whoever wants to take it away, you can go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. What's going on? My name is Sean Young. Uh, I am a person in long-term recovery. So what that looks like for me is I haven't put a substance in my body since December. 27th, the correction, December 7th, uh, 2019. <clears throat> because of that, because of recovery, it gave me my life back. Uh, it gave me uh, a happy, joyous, free life, and I'm able to use my experience um, from life and help others to recover from whatever addiction or mental health disorder that they're working through. And I'm, I'm honored to be here. Um, I'm absolutely honored and uh, privileged to be here. Um, and I'm a podcaster, among other things. So, I mean, yeah. Next, who wants to go next? Go ahead, Derek. Uh, okay, cool. My name is uh, Derek J. Fields, um, veteran um, in recovery. Um, April 10th was two years for me um, without putting any um, substances in my body. Thank you, brother. And, and congrats to you, too, Sean. Um, for your, your your recovery journey and your recovery time. Um, um, if you uh, have a day, um, we, we take our hats off to you. That's that's clean time, that's important. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a podcaster as well, uh, author, speaker, um, business owner, and, and a man of faith. Um, I, I do believe in God. Um, I, that's, uh, you'll hear a lot about that from me in, in some aspects, um, but yeah. Uh, that that's me in a nutshell, and I think we'll get into even more about who I am as as this show goes on. So thank you. My name is Chris. Uh, I'm also another uh, podcaster as well. Um, my podcast is Voice of the Voiceless. Uh, also the creator of the Mental Health Movement uh, Facebook group. Uh, I'm a fellow warrior, uh, survivor of two attempts, and you know just fighting every day, trying to spread the message of of mental health and just trying to be that beacon of light for those still in the darkness. Awesome. Appreciate you guys. And also thanks for joining. I really appreciate all of you. <clears throat> um, it means a lot that you guys took the time out of your day to do this. So I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This is important. So, um, I just want to share a quick PowerPoint. It's only eight slides, so it's not going to be too boring. So don't worry about that. Um, 
just want to share that with you guys real quick. Okay, can you guys see my screen? You can see the PowerPoint, right? Yes. Yes, sir. Yep. So I just want to talk about um, some of the things that we're going to be talking about later today. Um, it's going to be quick because a lot of this is, um, like I said, stuff that we're going to talk about later when we have like an open discussion. But I just want to kind of introduce it to you so you can uh, get a, like a, you know, idea of what we're going to be talking about. So we're going to be talking about stigma. Uh, we know this is one of the, the biggest things preventing people in general and also men, uh, particularly men, in terms of like uh, getting healthier, um, you know, uh, getting help. Um, I think for me personally, this was one of the biggest obstacles that I had to get over because, you know, growing up, I was always taught that, especially like uh, how I grew up, I was always taught that, you know, I had to be tough. I had to like, if something ever happened to my family, I needed to be the person to take care of my mom and uh, all the people that needed to be taken care of. So this for me was one of the biggest things um, that I had to get over. Um, I'm not sure if the other people, anybody else can relate, but um, that that alone was, you know, once I was able to get over that, that just set, sent me, that catapulted my mental health recovery just so far. And, um, you know, we all need somebody to talk to. And uh, for men, it's kind of hard to, to, you know, reach out. But like I said, that's the, for me, is that was the biggest issue. And once I got over that, that is what, um, you know, led me down the healthier lifestyle. So another thing, we're going to talk about depression. Um, you know, depression is, a lot of people experience it. Um, but there's been studies that show that men are, even though women have higher statistics in showing signs of depression, men actually experience it quietly more. Um, and I think that also goes, plays into the role of stigma where men just like, don't say anything, you know, they're like, I'll be all right. I just got to get through this. Um, you know, they don't go and get help. They don't say anything. Um, so yeah, we're also going to be talking about anxiety and stress, something we all feel. Another thing we're going to be talking about is substance abuse, which is huge, uh, for men and mental health and also PTSD, which is another really big, uh, topic. And also suicide prevention, which is, again, another big topic. These are all pretty much the leading issues in men's mental health we're going to be uh, talking about. And, yeah, that's pretty much it. I didn't want to read too much of the slides because I didn't want it to be too wordy because, like I said, I want this to be a discussion. And I want anybody in the chat to please speak up whenever you want and uh, share your story if you feel like it. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. We want to start the discussion. Where do you guys want to start? Do you want to start with sharing your stories? Do you want to start with talking about a certain aspect of mental health? It's completely up to you guys. Um, yep. If anybody. So, um, just want to uh, before we like dive too deep into anything, uh, just kind of like a like a side note. I just kind of want to add it in into this discussion. Was I feel one of the the biggest hurdles that we run into when it comes to trying to talk about men's mental health is we're in a society where when we try to talk about men's mental health, it's like, oh, more than women were, uh, you know, more men do this or more men have this over women. 
I feel uh, as somebody who is a man and struggles every day with depression and the things that I go through, if you want to openly talk about something and have a discussion about it, you know, it's not, I, I think just going about it in uh, terms of trying to compare, uh, I guess, what women go through opposed to what men go through, just kind of like counterpoints what you're trying to spread as a message. So I feel it's important to note that while the statistics and the facts are there that men may take their life more than women, I feel it's important to say, okay, men and women struggle with depression, men and women struggle with suicide, and we need to do something about it instead of it just, we have this more than this, you know what I mean? If that makes sense. No, that makes 100% agree with that, 100%. Sean, I think you're muted. Yeah, I think you're God, Sean. Damn it, this happens all the time. <laughs> Anyways, this is a common occurrence, y'all. This is going to happen more than once. Anyways, I think it's really, you know, in that aspect, it's comparing apples and oranges, right? Because men and women, although we have some of these same things, we deal with things completely differently, you know? And, and so I, I you know, I, I do agree with Chris. Yeah, I, I I'm... It's a conversation to have. It's not a measuring contest. It's not to mine is worse than yours. That's not helping anybody. It's, oh, wow, you dealt with that too? Man, how did you get through that? How did you survive that? How did you cope through that? That's what we're trying to get to is, is, different solutions, resolutions, and resources that can aid us in our recovery in all aspects of life. So I agree. The biggest defense that we can put up against other people uh, and get other people defensive is when you start comparing. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what we have to avoid is comparing, you know, because like I said, it's apples and oranges. Yeah. I definitely feel like social media plays a big part in that too. Cause you know, but you go on TikTok and you run into, you get into that rabbit hole of those videos of women saying men don't have this. And then men saying women don't have that. And it just, it counterpoints spreading a message that we're all trying to support. You know, it's not, uh, it's not a competition. Trauma shouldn't be compared and it shouldn't be a competition saying, uh, you know, I have a broken leg. You have a sprained ankle. Mine's worse than yours, but you know, it shouldn't be like that. 100% agree. I think it shouldn't be a comparison. I don't know if you guys can hear me. I'm on my cell phone driving right now. Yeah, we can hear you. But I feel like we have to be treated different because men and women are, you know, apples to oranges. They're inherently different. We're raised different and have different expectations that society expects out of us and what we expect out of ourselves. So if you could talk about men's mental health and separate the two because women's mental health might be treated a little different than men's mental health is, like treatment-wise and what, you know, we all go through. Yeah, I agree. And that's uh, one thing I wanted to talk about with you guys is kind of what he was saying, how, like, um, we're all treated differently in society. So do you guys think that societal roles are good for mental health or bad for mental health? I think it's bad for mental health. 
I just feel speaking, you know, as the woman on the chat here, I just feel like for some reason, like you guys are totally right. Um, men and women, we have different, you know, ways of coping and dealing with things, but I just feel like you guys do have it rough because you are in a like um like one of those things where oh i'm a man i gotta just rub some dirt on it and get over it you know what i mean like a lot of people feel like oh that guy was a are we a lot of cuss yes yeah say whatever it's a pussy you know what i mean like i don't yeah. want i just i didn't know if i was able to cuss but i just <laughs> like, <laughs> like i don't i just agree with it i feel like everybody's human men women you know however you identify yourself we all have emotions we all have feelings we all cope you know we can cope differently but there's nothing wrong with man a man expressing his emotions it doesn't make him less of a man it doesn't make him you know oh my god he's a woman oh my god like you know what i mean like i feel like society does have a big effect on how men's mental health has been and you know, you want to know why that is? It starts at home. Everything, yes. starts, everything starts at home. If I, if I, okay. So um, my son be 15 and my daughter be 21. So listen, so my dad was a different generation of guy. So him showing love might not been be like, sit me down and be like, hey, Derek, I love you. I put food, you got clothes, you got a roof. You don't want for anything. Okay. I take that to another level. I do the same thing, but at the same time, I tell my son, I love him. I kiss him. I hug him. I'm changing that learned behavior that I had as a child from, okay, I see my dad loves me. And it took me a while to get to that point. I see how my dad says he loves me. And now, now today we're better because of he's stable, I'm stable. And now we can say, I love you. And I, and I love you too, dad. And I love you, Derek. But I had to change it. If I wanted to see change, it had to start at my home. It had to start in my house. So I think that's one thing that society misses is if you want the change in the next generation, it starts at home. Absolutely. I agree. That generational, Absolutely. that generational trauma of, you know, of fathers treating their sons like shit. And I'm sorry, you'll hear that part in my story. Son, son's getting treated like shit and then perpetuating that later on in life to their their kids and then right that, that kid grows up and perpetuates that's that generational trauma being passed down over time and it's just that's something that we have to stop you know just to add to uh add to derek's point of you know it starts at home it, it, i think it's also important to to note you know the kids that go through like their parents being divorced at a very young age like my parents got divorced at eight years old and eight years old, you know, you're you're about to go into middle school soon and you you think that your parents are divorcing because of something you did and constant fighting and constant moving and stuff. And then whatever cycle that was created through that broken relationship, you know, it, it kind of gets drilled into that kid's head. Like, uh, you know, like just to share a little piece of my story uh, on this subject, but uh, just having to constantly be strong even when I was struggling because I'm a guy. You know, we don't talk about our feelings. We don't talk about uh, the fact that I felt suicidal for most of my childhood. You know, we don't talk about that stuff. We had to internalize it. And when you grow older, I mean, I didn't see a therapist until I was 27 years old and I'm almost 31 now. 
And I feel it's important uh, to spread that awareness on, on kids just as adults, because like Derek said, it starts at home and it can start at a very young age. And a lot of those kids don't show how much that impacts them until, you know, like teen years. So let me ask you guys something. Would you agree that, or would you say that trauma is, childhood trauma is the number one predictor in mental health issues? Uh, when yes. To an adult? Yeah. I agree. I agree. 100%. Yeah. You're, you're learning at a young age, you're learning who to trust and the foundations of trust. And if you don't have a solid foundation of trust, then you become an adult and you start to start to, default trust to other people or just don't trust people at all it's complete extremes it's a um <clears throat> it's an empathy process and what i mean by that is once i had to take a look at when i was in a 45 day veterans program and i, I was doing um I forgot what the treatment was called. Um, it's stuff that combat vets do and they process trauma and you put a name to it. Then you, you take the power from it. You, you, I forgot what it's called. But anyway, once I came out, I was very pissed off at my dad. I was pissed off at my dad for a long time because I didn't recognize that, like we said, that generational curse happened to him. He had childhood trauma and then he had combat trauma being a veteran of Desert Storm. So I had to be like, mm. so I'm walking out and I had a very good relationship with this tech, this behavioral tech named T. And T was like, come here. I know you mad at your daddy, but you hurt people too. I was like, damn, she was right. <laughs> so I had to have empathy. Not to a degree that I am justifying the behavior that my dad did, because he was kind of rough. He was rough, but I could empathize because I've been rough to people. Not justifying what he did was right, but I could understand if as a man, as a black man in America didn't have though in the 60s, dealing with all of that, seeing his dad go through his adopted dad, because his mother didn't want him, didn't know his daddy, then he had to go to the military too? Rough. What's PTSD? Don't know. They called it shell shock. So I had to empathize for me. Hey, okay. I can see why he was the way he was before an intervention happened. And I'll talk more about that because, again, like I said, I'm a man of faith as well. So I saw that change on that side because I do believe it's not just mental and physical, it's spiritual health. But anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because uh, that's something that me and you talked about and I can definitely relate with because, uh, you know, um, that's one thing that really helped me uh, get a better relationship with my dad is understanding like the things that he's been through and he's been through a lot. And kind of like how you said, like, once you go back and realize, like, what he's been through and that kind of makes him how he is, it makes it easier to forgive him, you know, because like like you, I was I did not like I hated my dad. I mean, I'm not afraid to say I hated my dad, you know, seeing him beat up me, my brothers, my mom. Like, I 
really wanted to hurt my dad for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but I just, um, one time I went to visit him and I went to visit like his family, um, cause I had gotten some trouble and, um, I finally realized like why he is the way he is just off of how his family treated him. I mean, I met his mom and his mom wanted nothing to do with him. His dad is not around. He was raised by his grandma and she passed away when I was a young kid. So, you know, <clears throat> seeing him get abandoned by his own family, I'm sure that messed him up. Um, as a kid. And then, you know, he was involved in the street. So I think I'm glad that you brought that up because that's definitely a, a big point in, in, in um, healing is understanding other people's trauma and trying to forgive them for the trauma that they put on you. So, yeah, I think that was a, a great point. There's also, um, I wanted to add to the childhood trauma, uh, comment as well because uh i i feel it's important to recognize uh abuse uh being a really big factor in, in uh you know that generational cycle that is passed up from our parents to us and affects us when we're adults like for me when i started therapy you know i heard the word abuse and not to say that it's an overused word but i feel people use certain words in the mental health community that kind of like water down the definitions of, of, you know, like narcissist, the amount of times I've heard the word narcissist and gaslighting in the last three years, it almost has no meaning anymore because it's just like, okay, from somebody who has a very toxic mother and was a very abusive mother, it's just kind of like me talking about my story and hearing that word every other day, just kind of feels like there's no meaning behind it. But uh, you know, for the longest time, I didn't know I was abused. You know, I, I didn't know there was mental abuse or emotional abuse until I started therapy and being able to recognize all those generational uh, cycles that were passed up from her parents up to me. And unfortunately, that relationship's still broken. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to be fixed. And I'm at that point in my life where I'm okay with that just for the simple fact that I need to honor my inner child and honor my boundaries uh, in terms of healing. So the childhood trauma thing, I think abuse is a really gigantic factor uh, in the healing process too, when you can recognize uh, that you were abused. Yeah, you made a great point there. Um... And that's something I can relate with how you said that you didn't even recognize that you were going through abuse until you went to therapy. And that's something that all, I also experienced because um, uh, like I was kind of similar to you, how you said, like, there are things that like you don't even know that are really affecting your mental health that you don't even know that they're there until somebody talks to you about it. Because like you're either shoving it so deep down or you're just not acknowledging it at all. And then when somebody finally says something to you, like somebody that you trust, it's like it just opens up a whole can of worms. And uh, that's why if there's anybody watching that has not been to therapy, I strongly recommend it because it's so beneficial to your mental health. And like there are a lot of things that affect your mental health, spiritual and physical health. And sometimes people just don't even realize it until they have somebody to talk to about it. And, you know, somebody that's been through things. So. Uh, I want to add to that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Um, I was just, just going to say, um, and just to add to the therapy comment as well, um, 
I, I always just try to make it a point to, to just mention that therapy is not for everybody just because either somebody doesn't want to put in the work that therapy requires you to do, you know, to dig within yourself, to be able to heal. Um, but, you know, try to like keep an open mind. You know, I, I know plenty of friends who have gone through several therapists and then just kind of gave up because unfortunately we live in a world where there are people in that profession that, aren't a hundred percent dedicated to that craft and sorry to say, but looking for a paycheck, I have myself run into a therapist like that. And I feel if you're wanting to heal and you're wanting to peel back all the toxic skin that you're wearing from your childhood trauma, I a hundred percent agree with you, Trenton. Uh, therapy has changed my life in the best possible way, but it's not for everybody. It's there's different ways of, of healing and I put therapy number one for me. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. Um, well, similar to, um, it is a process. Um, there are people, there are therapists and counselors out there that are there for a check. They will go through the motions um, and they won't have that humanity that you're looking for. Um, it's not for everyone, but I say don't, I would, I would suggest just don't give up. And if you do, if you are looking for a therapist, look for someone that has your same values, morals, and beliefs. That helps out a lot. Um, that, that can make a big difference, um, especially if you're coming from a, um, like myself, um, if I'm looking for a therapist, I'm looking for a faith-based therapist, someone that has um, a higher power, someone who believes in God. I need that. I just couldn't. It wouldn't make no sense to me to go to a therapist that's not that doesn't have a belief system in God. It just wouldn't do me any good because we wouldn't see, we wouldn't connect on things um, in that regard. So um, it is a process. Don't give up. Um, look, try local support groups. Um, talk, uh, group therapy is really, really good because sometimes, like y'all said, you might not even know, like Chris said, or even Trenton, you might not know that you've been abused until you talk about it, or you might not even know you've been abused until you hear it, hear about it. Like, damn, you did, you went through that? Me too. That's wrong? Yeah, that's wrong. Uh, 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 my wife shared with me one time, uh, she's a recreational therapist and she does both substance and psych. And she said, "There's one girl, and her and, and the connotations of her uh, was getting abused in a very graphic way. And I don't want to use that word. So, grape. She didn't know it was wrong until she heard it from someone else that it was wrong. So, <laughs> yeah, just just to buffer y'all point, y'all are absolutely right. You don't know until you know, and if you know, tell." Yeah, that's right. I agree, especially with the um, the group therapy thing. Um, before I started seeing a therapist, that was huge for me. Not necessarily group therapy, but just finding a person as in a friend uh, that I could talk to. Because um, sometimes, it, well, for me, it took a lot to really go to a therapist. You know, like go out of my house, go to an office, sit down, talk to somebody. That took a lot. It was a lot more comfortable for me at first to just talk to one of my friends. And um, and then that led into like bigger groups, um, you know, on campus, faith groups, whatever it is for me, that's what it was. But that helped out a lot for me. 
until I was able to, you know, get enough strength and courage to actually go see a therapist. But um, kind of like Derek was saying, I definitely recommend like trying to find a group because that can be really helpful. Even just hearing other stories, if you don't speak up, like it's really, really beneficial. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was hunting around for a counselor back when I first started recovery. I went to the VA, fucked around, fucked around Derek and went to the VA. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I got I got parroted. How does that make you feel? Well, it makes me angry because you're sitting here parroting me. But anyways, uh, no, I, I ended up finding a counselor that, uh, that was a veteran and he was also uh, in recovery. So that like to me, it was like, you are the golden goose, my friend. And then he stopped his practices and I was back to square one. But anyways, no, you find somebody that you work with and that, that, uh, that, that works for you and, and everything would be great. Yeah. So, um, uh, does anybody want to like share their story? Um, if you're not comfortable with sharing everything, it's up to you guys, but I'm kind of interested. I want to hear, I want to hear a little bit more about uh, y'all's story. Yeah, I can go first if y'all don't mind. Yeah, man. All okay. right. All right. So like I said before, and you guys can see on the screen, my name is Sean. Um, I am a person long term recovery. Like I said before, uh, my story of trauma really starts, uh, fuck, probably at the age of two or three. And uh, for the first four years of my life, I didn't know my dad. He left my mom. And when he came back into my life, it's kind of like, oh, shit, my dad, right? So I ended up trying to form this bond with my dad, um, but I just didn't know how how to reach him, right? Um, he was a heavy drinker. And my first bit of trauma I remember seeing is walking downstairs. We lived in this, this apartment in uh, Hyattsville, Maryland, which isn't too far from where I'm at now, and walked down into the kitchen, and he's bent over the sink with a knife in his back. I never, never witnessed any violence before that. And so that kind of always stuck with me in the back of my mind and my subconscious. And so to see your, like somebody that you project as a hero wounded really fucked me up. A little later on in life, when I was about the age of four, I was splashing around in the bathroom, you know, in, in, in the, uh, in the bathtub and dad walks in, he sees me, uh, making a mess. He pulls me out and beats my ass with a bear with, with a belt bear. I'm still wet and everything. And because of that situation and because of a few other things, my sister and I were taken away from my mother and my father. That situation sparked this unhealthy fear of, of my father. Started out right at, at a young age, right? So I didn't know what I didn't know how to trust people. I didn't understand the concept of trust. I gave my trust blanket to everybody. And then I expected that things would come in return for me, but it never really did. So we get put in a foster care system and about six months in the foster care system with a, with a family, we end up getting removed from the home and given to my grandparents who are on my dad's side. And, and so now my dad has access to my sister and I at his own will, whenever he wants, he can come and go. And there was many times where that, that fear was, was elevated to a new level. And then at the age of 10, my father got custody of my sister and I and took us up to Erie, Pennsylvania. 
Erie, Pennsylvania is like equal distance in between New York and Ohio, uh, just for reference, right on the lake. And we end up living with him. And my dad, like I said before, was an alcoholic and he was drinking really heavily. He was on his truck driver. He was on the road when he would come home. Uh, his anger would be directed at my sister, who was probably three years younger than me. So the anger is projected at my sister and it started off small. It started off with verbal and emotional abuse, right? And then it turned into physical abuse. He was smacking around and shit. One day he comes to me and he says, hey, uh, your sister's not my biological daughter. So um, I'm sending her down to your grandmother's. The only constant thing in my life was ripped away from me. And I no longer had that constant in my life anymore. And so when she was moved down to back with my grandparents, his, his, his anger got directed at me. And once again, to start out mental, emotional abuse, he'd call me names. He would call me names that like now are glorified. He would be like, you're gay, you're, you're gay. And right. I, I was 11, 12 years old. Didn't even know what that meant, but I knew it was derogatory because that's how, how it was used back in the day. And so it really fucked with me. And I had this, I had no sense of identity. Um, I was filled with doubt. I didn't know who to trust. I was, I was terrified of authority figures. So life was really chaotic for me. And then it turned into physical. So it started out with slaps on the back, on, on the back of the head. And then it turned to violent. Uh, the first occasion that I remember is don't even remember what happened or why he got so angry, but he walked in the kitchen. I was standing there and he grabbed me by the throat, like undertaker, a cane, squeezed my neck and hoisted me above. And he looked at me dead in the eyes and said, I'm gonna fucking kill you. And that was the first time that I was legitimately scared for my life of my father. I'm here. So obviously I didn't die, but, um, it, it got progressively worse over time. He he used to he used to say this thing like go in the backyard and practice falling down. So uh, what that meant was he's gonna kick the shit out of me, and he, I would go in the backyard and he would throw me from fence post to fence post. We had a pretty big yard, and uh, I would hit the fence, and he'd come down with the elbow to the back of the head. And if you know anything about that, it causes concussions. And he would do the same thing in the garage. And it, it just got very violent to the point where my dad just looked at me as, as, as a problem. So I ended up kicking me out and I went down with my grandparents back down to Maryland. And for that year that I was gone away from my dad, I was trying to identify who I was, you know, my existence, right? Uh, I didn't have this like crazy traumatic experience when I was with my grandparents. Uh, but I always had this longing to figure out who I was and why I was. And so I wanted to be in the military at some, in some form or fashion, didn't understand the concept of the military because I never really raised around guns or, or all that crazy hoorah shit. But, um, my, my life kind of went off that path and I, I, I said, Hey, I, I want to be a pastor. I want to go to Bible school. There's a very influential tele televangelist that I, I followed when I was a kid and I wanted to go to his school. And my dad said, absolutely not. You're joining the military. Him and I fought for a while and I ended up bending to his will. And uh, he drove me down to the recruiting station. Uh, and people always ask me, why did you join the army? And I said, well, it's because that was the only office that was open. But that was the only office that treated me like a human being. 
So I signed a contract that day on my birthday, on my 18th birthday. It was my first day in basic training. When my dad dropped me off at MEPS, which is pretty much where they where you get dropped off to to get shipped out um, to basic training. Um, he didn't say, I love you. He didn't say goodbye. He didn't say good luck. I shut the door and he literally drove the fuck off. And it absolutely reaffirmed every thought that I had in my brain that he just didn't care about me, that I was no longer his problem. So like I said, I joined the, the army in uh, July. Well, first day of basic was July 11th, 2006, my, my, my 18th birthday. And basic training and, and AI or my advanced individual training and airborne school were all easy for me because I was living, I lived in that chaos, right? I was used to being screamed at. I was used to, to the craziness running around doing all this madness. So it really didn't bother me too much, but I had this like little lingering thing in the back of my brain. So after my airborne school, I get assigned to uh, the 173rd Airborne Brigade out of Italy and there's no drinking age over there. So the first weekend I get there, I get absolutely hammered. And that would start a five month bender. I was 18 years old, already drinking, already getting shit can. If you know anything about the, about the brain or the male brain, the male brain doesn't actually finish developing to the age of 23. So I'm still a certified kid. And uh, I come up on my first deployment and we go to the, this really hot contentious area in Afghanistan. Um, and I just had no will to live. I didn't want to die, but just didn't have a will will to live. So I was taking a little bit, a few extra risks that you I, I normally wouldn't take. It was a 15 month deployment. We get back from that deployment, and I'm not even half an hour off the plane. I'm I'm back in my room getting shit canned, and that that lapse, relapse, whatever you choose to call it, um, lasted for about a year. I met a woman, and I fell in love with her. Uh, but I didn't understand the concept of trust, right? A blanket gave my trust. So her and I were together for about a year. And on my second deployment with the same unit, uh, I found out that she was cheating on me. So that this this starts this trend of trusting people with zero validation. And I get back from that deployment. Once again, I had nobody to live for, right? Like I didn't give a shit. I, I had nobody to live for. Uh, I went on R&R, which is uh, our leave. And for that 18 days, I wasn't sober a single day. Like I was, I was, I drank so much that on the way back to Afghanistan, I was still drunk. I didn't care. I, I, I had no will to live. I didn't want to die, but I just didn't want to live. So get back and uh, from, from that deployment. And like I said, like last time, half an hour off the, off the bus or off the plane and, and I'm back in my room drinking. Short time after uh, we get back, I meet my my uh, my daughter's mother, and uh, once again, blanket trust to, to somebody I didn't know. We got married at a young age. I was about twenty two when we got married, and we got married because she was pregnant. And so she she got pregnant on the way to Fort Bragg. I was I ended up getting stationed with the eighty second, and uh, life was crazy. Um, I had this kid on the way. And I know that I didn't want to be the dad that my dad was to me. And so before my daughter was born, I got deployed uh, in 2012. And I wasn't able to come home for the birth, which is pretty traumatic. It sucked. But when I got back home, I had this little kid, right? This little baby girl. And I was like, I don't want her to see what I had to see growing up. But I started doing those actions, like not the violent ones, but I was drinking all the damn time. And then I got hit with the proposition, hey, if you don't stop drinking, I'm going to leave. 
and I didn't want to feel the pain because I've already lost people in my life. And so I just, I, I said, I'm not going to drink, but I wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it for somebody else. And so, um, I get on my last deployment and with the 82nd and I had this time to think, and, and I went into this downward spiral of like, it's self-doubt and, and self-manipulation, self-sabotage. And I ended my marriage. I, I and, and in a way, in a, in a fashion which I alienated myself. So I get back from that deployment and I didn't have anybody to, to stay sober for. My family, I didn't have that. Uh, my, my actual family, I didn't have them. So I just, I went back to drinking again. And uh, I met a woman. Once again, here we go. We're falling in the same trap again. And um, I was drinking in that time. And she said, you know, you got to quit drinking or I'm leaving. And I was like, well, I don't want to feel that pain. So I'm going to quit drinking for you. And uh, we were together for uh, about four years. I had this weird thing where like, where like, I I have that three year, that that three year shit where, where I, I'm in a relationship and a marriage for three years and it just goes sour. Don't know why, but uh, at, at year three, uh, I found out she's cheating on me. We, I'm, I'm stationed in Alaska at this time, and she's with me, and uh, my health is going downhill. Right, uh, I'm, I'm sober because not by choice, but just because she said I don't, I don't want you drinking, um, and and my health is going downhill because I have traumatic brain injury that's untreated and undiagnosed, and. Um, so I, I start taking my health a little bit seriously after I found out she's cheating on me. I said, I have nobody to be sober for. So I relapsed actually today, today in 2018 was, was that relapse and that relapse lasted for, for, for a month. And at the end of that month, uh, May 30th, I, I made the decision that I'm going to fuck I, I'm going to end it. I'm done. I can't, I can't do this no more. This life sucks. And I justified it all, but I, I had this plan and I said, if, if somebody, one person picks up the phone, when I call, I'll stop. Not one single person did, but I called the people that I knew were in different time zones that wouldn't pick up. So I did it to myself, man. I put myself in that position. And so nobody picked up. I made 32 phone calls and I justified that in my brain. I said, I made 32 phone calls. Nobody cares about me. So I put my truck in a tree at 70 miles an hour while I was completely intoxicated. And when I woke up in the hospital, uh, I realized something had to change. Something ha in, in me had to change. I just didn't know what it was. So I checked myself in int intensive outpatient or inpatient. Sorry, I went inpatient. And I stayed there for 11 days. And I learned good things and CBT and all that stuff. And I ended up getting out and, and you know, continuing my career in the Army. But uh, I was facing medical separation. And so I ended up getting medically retired in, in uh, 2019. But in the time of getting divorced and, and, and uh, getting out of the army, I met another woman. There's a trap. There's a goddamn trap again. And I met this woman. And, and this time I looked at her as, as this project that I, ha I can fix her because she's got all these problems. Uh, I can't even fix my goddamn self. So how can I fix somebody else? I can't. So uh, we started this relationship very rocky, rocky from the start. I, you know, I was getting out of the army. Anybody who understands transition out of the army at, at a low rank, I was, I was a staff sergeant. So it was a little bit harder, a lot easier than some of the other guys, but a lot harder. And so I ended up 
getting out of the army and uh july 5th or sorry july 4th uh 2019 uh i fed myself the lie the last time that i was good enough to drink and so i looked at my then wife and it's the third wife by the way and and uh she said do you think you're okay to drink and i said yeah and i justified every reason why i thought that i was okay to drink and i i told her i said i'm just gonna have one and uh she said okay well one turn to five i told her i was good and uh the next night five turned to ten and and one one was too much a thousand was never enough for me and i, I just kept going dude moderation was not in my books and i don't understand moderation i still don't um but that relapse would last for six months and at the end of that six months i found myself in jail i found myself in jail on an assault charge and uh, I was sitting in jail and I was blaming everybody for my problems. I was blaming my wife because, you know, she could have quit and stopped me from drinking that night. Well, nobody could have. Uh, I blamed my roommate because he was bigger than me and he could have choked me out. But reality is, is nobody could have. Nobody could have stopped me from doing what I was going to do. I was on a path of self-destruction. And so in the midst of blaming everybody and like bitching and complaining about it, uh, one of my cellmates, old native man, looks at me and he says, Viking, because I mean, I look like a Viking. He said, Viking, shut the fuck up. You did this to yourself. You created all your problems. When you accept that, you'll be okay. So at first I was like, nah, he don't know me. I, he don't know my story. But then some crazy nexus happened in my brain, and I said, he's right. And uh, when I accepted that, my bail got posted the same day. Electronic monitoring came, put ankle bracelets on me, and I got released from jail, and that's where my recovery started. And, uh, my, the judge that was overseeing my therapeutic court, cause I was in therapeutic court, which down here, it would be called drug court, mental health court, what have you. But I was in a veterans court where we work directly with the VA and, um, the judge looked at me and he said, why is this different than any other time you've tried to get sober? And I said, cause I got to do it for myself because if I do it for somebody else, I'm going to fail. God forbid my family leaves me. I have to do it for myself because I won't stay sober any other way. And, uh, Fast forward, um, I graduated. I became a peer support specialist. I went and got certified uh, in MRT, which is a moral reconnation therapy. I love it. It saved my life. And then fast forward to this December, Chris knows this story. Early December, my wife walked out with the kids. And I had to sit in my own shit and my own uncomfortable feelings with no explanation as to why. And work through that and stay sober because I had only me to stay sober for and I did and I ended up moving to West Virginia and that was the best move for me and and here I am here I am still sober three years later working my program trying to be uh you know and uh be the best version of me that I can be thank you for letting me share thanks for sharing thank you for sharing yeah, man. Uh, I've told you this before, and no, no problem at all repeating it. Uh, you're one of the strongest human beings that I know, and I am absolutely honored to call you a friend and a brother in the trenches. I think the absolute world of you. I think you're incredible. Um, thank you for sharing, man. You're one of the best people I know in my life, and I appreciate you. Thank you, Chris. You know, in, in that time in December, there's very few people that I trusted. 
And Chris was one of those people. And so I'm absolutely honored to be sitting here and on this panel with him. He's one of the best human beings I know. Thank you, man. Even when I was saying the same shit over and over again. <laughs> Derek, if you want to share, man, go for it. Um, okay. Um, I'm going to keep it um, kind of tight. Um, like I shared earlier, abusive father, he had his trauma. Um, very abusive to me, my mother, my brother. My mother was our type of individual that... Um, she was strong. They were both strong in their own right. Um, but she could be manipulative and use that guilt trip system, which I don't appreciate. Uh, so dealt with childhood trauma. Abusive father. Saw my mother get beat up. Saw my dad pull a gun on my brother. I got beat up. Okay. Because where I'm going is, for me, okay, the trauma, all that, but I want to get to the, the hope. That's what I want to do for me. That's what I'm going to share about. I, um, I was a runner for my cousin. He's running the premier drug dealers up and down the East Coast. I was a runner. I was a driver. Worked at Burger King. Uh, still got good grades in school. Sometimes I was a attention seeker. I like jokes. I like funny. Humor is the gift that God gave me. So not only did I do my work, but I wanted to be funny. How else did I take control in my childhood? Well, there back in the day, there was these big satellite dishes and you moved them by pressing in a code. And sometimes there would be scrambled porn and sometimes it would come in and you could see it. And then sometimes I would stay up late at night and they used to be called soft porn which would be on Cinemax. That's how my addiction started through the trauma. I wanted to control something. So I controlled it by watching sex, watching porn, and masturbating at a young age. That's how I had power and control in something. They tell us in treatment, before you even take your first substance, the disease of addiction is there through some type of trauma, some type of learned behavior. I learned through that trauma, through that unpredictability, that uncertainty of a childhood, that this is something that I can control. Didn't like my father very much, so when I turned 18, I was gone. Military, could have graduated early, but I wanted to walk with my folks. AP classes, so that last semester, I was hall monitor, chilling. Got on the microphone, hey, all the big booty girls come to the office. Got ISS in school suspension, but it was fun. I was funny. I liked humor. Humor and masturbation and porn got me through from not trying to kill my dad. My brother, 12 years older than me, so he was gone. When he was 18. I was like, what, 12? So he was gone. Um, but I love my brother. Uh, the incident where he put a gun on my brother over money. Um, my mom, my dad, my mom, and my my sister in law. My sister, I call her my sister. Uh, the boys was there. My nephews, they my brothers. I helped raise them. Um, if that trigger went went off that day, I thank God it didn't. 
And the reason that I say I thank God because this God has been interceding in my life through a lot of this trauma that I didn't know he was there until I knew he was there. So that's one instance that he was there. Like he did not let that trigger go off. There was nothing, anything else could have happened. Oh, it was a coincidence. Oh, he didn't, no, nah, for me, it was God. God didn't want that trigger to go off because he knew that Mr. Ernest Fields could not come back from that collapse. Just wasn't going to happen. So God intervened there. My mother didn't want us to leave. She stayed. She took it. She showed her strength. She showed her strength. You don't know why? I asked her, why didn't you leave? Because I didn't want to keep moving my children from this place, this place, and this place. That's my house. Damn. Okay. Verse example of a strong woman that I saw. She put her kids first. She didn't want to keep moving us from house to house to house to house to house. Mm. So God worked there. Went to Iraq. Uh, January of 04. 14 months. Got back in 05. Went back in 06. Another 12 months. First tour. Lost a couple brothers. Saw them, saw them die. Well, I was part of the explosion. I woke up in the TMZ. Tactical medical zone. I couldn't hear. I was out. I got blown up into a truck. My brothers is gone. I'm still here. Didn't know God had a plan then. Didn't understand why my brothers had to go, but that's not my department. My department is I'm still here. I got a, I got works to do. Didn't understand that back at that time. All right, moving forward. I got tired. I got my E5 sergeant. I wasn't going back over there again. Went to Korea, drank, shot, partied, whatever. Came back stateside. That's when it really started to hit because through all that time, since I could remember trauma to the time I got back stateside, there was no processing. There was no talking to anyone because my family is built on perception. The Fields family got to look good on the outside. No matter how much the inside of the tabernacle of the church of the home is messed up, the outside got to look good to be that presentation to the world. Bump all that. I started having suicidal ideations. I started to commit suicide, took my life, tried to take my life twice, got saved again. Because I'm supposed to be here doing this work. Moving forward. Um, met my kid's mom. Still didn't know about PTSD. I'm fighting back and forth between my my unit and trying to get out. Got out honorably. You got that right. Took two years. Got my compensation. Got what I was supposed to. That was a fight because they're going to poke, poke and prod you. Okay. So there's military trauma. There's childhood trauma and there's military trauma. Didn't know that broke that anger and rage, rage broke up my family. So I was a very abusive to my kids and mother that broke us up. Now we're family. <laughs> God, again. Um, in that time, I was still addicted to sex. Women, I liked it. Still a good, still in my kids' life. Back and forth, moved from San Antonio to Round Rock, Texas, which is a subset of Austin, Texas. My kids, was I would drive down there to get them. They would come up. It was good. Still liking sex. Now went from phone chat, because you used to hook up on girls on the phone, to now, ooh, what? 
You telling me I can pay for an hour and a half at whatever price I want and get whatever I want without all the drama? You got that right. Sign me up and we can pop pills and we can play and we can party. You got that right. What happened? Crack cocaine stuff. I was an addict that tried any and everything to make me feel good doing sex because I wanted sex to be the best it could be in that moment. So I tried every drug, crack cocaine stuff. I lost two years with my son, lost a relationship with my daughter, lost two apartments, lost cars, lost family, lost trust, homeless, nothing, sleeping in the street, sleeping in my car, stinking, nothing. We speeding this up because I'm trying to get to you, get you to understand. I overdosed on my couch. You know what I heard when my body was, when my soul was slipping out of my body and I felt it, I heard my name three times from God Almighty Derek. 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 I woke up. Still didn't stop. But that was God again because I'm supposed to be here doing these works. Still didn't stop. Got in a fight with a guy. He caught me. Still here. Because I realized I could have hit my head on the concrete and been gone. Or when I got up, I could have killed him because I was mad because with the whole PTSD thing and the military training, I could have killed him. Still here. I relapsed. I don't know. How many treatment facilities? I don't know. But what I do know is that by the grace of God, I am here. I'm supposed to be here. And I have no shame in talking about what I want to talk about. Because I'm not going to give the power to it anymore. I'm an addict in recovery. I was abusive. I've been abused. Hurt people. I pay for sex. I lied to my family. I almost killed my mother in the context of she told me all the running around she was doing to put money in my account was killing her. And she already had pre-health conditions herself. She got out of work at 1995 because she had a panic attacks and anxiety, all the trauma she'd been through. I'm killing my mom. Lost trust with my brothers. And I'm stuck at this gate. And I'm stuck in this basement. Still here. The relationship with my parents is better. I'm getting the relationship back with my brothers. I made amends. And you know what? I met my wife when I didn't have shit. I met my wife in a treatment facility. She was an intern. If that ain't God, I don't know what is. A woman that loved me in spite of having everything in a car. That's out front. Listen, all I'm here to do is, yeah, trauma, mental health, physical health, spiritual growth. Absolutely. But my purpose on this podcast is hope. Hope that it can be done. And joy and freedom can come if you want it. I want it and I work for it daily. I work for it daily because I have to be aware that this world, this, this, this fleshly stuff wants to destroy me. 
I can't let it because I have a responsibility to y'all, to everyone here, that if you're going through anything mental, physical, spiritual, it's okay. There's different ways of healing, but positive ways. They be like, what's recovery for you, dear? It's inspirational change moving forward. What are you talking about? Recovery ain't res exclusively to mental health and, and substance use. I brushed my teeth today. That's recovery. I, I took a hot shower. That's recovery. I had a good hot meal. That's recovery. I get to tell my son I love him. I get to kiss on my daughter. I love mm. I get to go help my dad cut grass. That's recovery. Inspirational change moving forward. The small things that I took for granted. Being here with y'all is recovery. Telling y'all that I love y'all is recovery. I just want to get to the hope part because yeah, like I, the, the trauma is there, but the hope is, 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 is now and in the future. So that, that's, that's basically what I wanted to share. I wanted to share the hope part because everybody, oh, I got the trauma. Yeah, I got that too. Man, I got the, the homelessness. Yeah, I got that too. Man, I got the disease of addiction. I got that too. Anxiety, got that too. You stink, I did, got that too. <laughs> lived on the bridge, got that too. Lived in the car, got that too. Lived in the shelter, got that too. Got it all. But what, what's most important is the hope. I got that too. Got that too. And I'm not going to give that up. And I just want to share that because like, dang, you been through all that, Derek? Yep, still here. So listen, ain't nobody tell you today that they love you. We do. And that's all I got. Derek, holy shit, man. If, yeah, man. Wow. If, it's, if, if there was one person that I could point out and say that it works if you work it and you just keep coming back, that's you. Right. And, and absolutely. I admire, I admire you even more than I did before. Cause you're a wrestling fan. <laughs> absolutely. Baby too sweet. You know how we do. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Derek, I have a question there real quick, but no, but thank y'all. I appreciate that. Same to y'all too. I love you, man. So, yeah, man. um, I have a question real quick for you, Derek. What, what do you think was, the absolute turning point in your life where you decided to, you know, start working on things and becoming a better person. Honestly, I started to have to take inventory over my life. Like the in 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 I'm in the NA fellowship, but I, I go to any fellowship because I'm an open person. They teach us open-mindedness. It was the inventory I had to take on myself, and it's the inventory for me for Derek that I had to see how God was still blessing me. I can't lie. That's that. Listen, I got, I got two children by the same, by the same woman. I'm a recovering addict and I didn't have nothing. That's a hard sale. That's a hard sale. And I got a beautiful wife to love my two children. Me and my uh, kid's mom have a great relationship. That's my family. I love her husband. I love their little girl. I treat her like she's mine. That's what it is for me. 
Like, I have to honor that. I have to honor that. If I don't, I, 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 for me, I have to honor that. I can't keep mocking or spitting. <laughs> I, I, I just can't. That's the turning point. I had to take inventory. And like, man, okay. Okay, guy. And I'm only talking about me. Okay, I see you. I acknowledge you. And I gotta honor, I gotta honor that. That's that's what it was. That's that keeps me. It's the NA, it's the fellowship, it's the literature, and all aspects of literature. And it's God for me. And y'all, I see God in like I see that in y'all. Y'all are miracles. We all are miracles because we could have been dead and gone, but we not because we're here to do this, to provide that hope for that person that thinks they ain't, there isn't any. Because th that, that's that's what it is. That, that I have that, there, it's a responsibility to do that. And I can't, I don't want to say can't not, it's too, devil, too negative. I have to do it and do it with joy and, 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 and vigor and and just a smile on my face. So I don't want to take up too much time because Chris got to go. Yeah. Um, really quick, Derek. Uh, I want to just kind of echo what what Sean said. Um, you're you're an incredible human being. Um, very inspirational, and I think you're one of the most genuine people I think I've ever had a conversation with. So thank you so much for sharing your story because uh there's a lot in there that you mentioned that has pieces in my story too so i just wanted to say how much i appreciated you sharing thank you and and, and i love you brothers man and and like i like like i said you 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 go ahead and go yeah so but i love y'all all of y'all <laughs> love you too bro um so i guess to really tell the story right my trauma started when I was about four years old. And uh, basically, my mom was unfaithful to my dad. Um, I remember driving my dad, or not driving, taking my dad to this guy's house that my mom was fooling around with at four years old. And I remember every detail. I remember the car, and I remember who was, what his name was. So fast forward to uh, eight years old when the divorce finally happened, uh, when my sister was born. Um, my, my thought was always, uh, as an adult, that my mom just waited until my sister was born to call it quits with my dad because she wanted a daughter. She wanted somebody that she can mold to be just like her, that she could keep under her thumb and uh, turn her into the person that she is herself. So... Fast forward uh, into like middle school, we moved around a lot after the divorce. Uh, I can probably, I run out of fingers at how many times we moved uh, because of how many relationships my mom was in. Uh, I've lived from Clearwater to to New Jersey, and I'll get to the New Jersey part uh, here in, uh, soon. But middle school, uh, I went to two different middle schools in one year. Um, didn't really have a stable amount of friends. It was mainly just me, my friend Clayton, and maybe one or two people from school. But I was always, I always internalized a lot of my pain. Um, and that pain really started in middle school. And I started noticing how bad 
it was getting because I wasn't allowed to take any electives because uh, the standardized testing basically made it to where I couldn't uh, get into any electives. So I couldn't socialize more. So going to ninth grade, um, self-harming uh, became something that I was really bad with. Um, I always wore this insane clown posse red sweater every single day. Um, and I always covered up my arms because I didn't want anybody to see, you know, what I did to myself. Uh, I had ace bandages on my arms like every other day. My mom never noticed. She never, never saw me. And it was mainly because um, she was just too busy on what relationship that she was going to move on to. So fast forward a little bit into ninth grade. Um, I attempted to take my, my life. Uh, I had the means. I had a plan. I, I was ready to just go. My brain uh, just couldn't comprehend pain. And I just didn't really know how else to deal with the pain I was dealing with at the time. So I uh, packed a rope in my backpack, um, was getting ready to tie it onto the balcony, and somebody had caught wind of it because they saw it uh, when we were in PE. And a resource officer tackled me to the ground before I could do it. Um, so that was my first experience with uh, outpatient therapy. Um, the therapist that, we, that they stuck me with was a gambling uh, addiction therapist. Um, was with her for only two sessions. Was probably one of the most useless experiences of my entire life because, you know, 14 years old, I mean, that was well over 10 years ago now. So mental health resources aren't like they are now. You know, we didn't really know what suicide and depression was and all that stuff uh, when, we were, when we were that young or that many years ago now. So it was a joke. You know, resources were a joke. Um, I, cling, uh, I clung on to music. Music was something that helped me escape and just get away from everything. And one of my biggest inspirations is Chester Bennington. You know, he was one of the biggest reasons that I do what I do. You know, I wear his hat. I have his uh, logo and, and signature tattooed on my arm. Like, he got me through some of the worst times of my life. And, again, uh, Fast forward to 10th grade, I went to three different high schools in one year. Um, I think I was at a high school at one point for three months and went to another high school because we moved again. Um, again, going through high school, barely any friends, always kept to myself. I didn't really start um, breaking out of my shell till maybe like late 10th grade. Um, I used to have this monster necklace that had over like 300 and something monster caps. Not all drank by me, but a good portion of them were. And I would always get interaction from people. And it was it was weird because I'm not used to that. And um, that's when I met this girl, Natasha. Uh, she came down uh, right before she was going to basic training. Um, we knew each other for, I want to say, five or six years at the time. And then we finally met. And I gave her the necklace. Uh, I don't know why. I think I was just young and dumb and just, you know, just uh, trying to create some kind of a connection with a female. Um, and it turned into nothing. She uh, ended up leaving me, I think, a couple a couple days later because, you know, she was like, oh, you know, I want to try this 
uh, relationship with you and everything. And she's going to basic and everything. I didn't know what that entailed. You know, I never experienced love because my mom never showed it in a healthy way. Um, and I thought that was love. You know, I was really young and didn't know better. So I gave her the necklace and bought her all this stuff. And just, I remember her, uh, when she broke up, broke up with me, I don't really wouldn't consider it much of a relationship, but, um, that was heartbreak that I was all too familiar with. So there was, uh, once I turned 18, uh, my mom basically pushed me into going to college. Uh, you know, she was like, oh, well, right after high school, you got to go right into college, you know, uh, right away. Like, don't even think about it. You just need to go. So I went out of her wishes, much like Sean's story where his dad forced him into the military. My mom basically forced my hand into college. So I went to college and was doing okay for a little while. Me and my mom were going to this college together. It was a community college. Um, when I turned about 20 years old, she was leaving for New Jersey out of nowhere. Um, another failed relationship, and she found another relationship that would require her to move out of the state and you know put herself first because she never put her kids first. Um, I was left with uh, no home. Uh, I had to go live with uh, somebody at the time I considered a best friend. Um, kind of kept that cycle of moving around. I went from his house back to my dad's house to another friend's house back to my dad's house. That's when I tried going to wrestling school. Um, I felt great about it. You know, I was losing weight. I was doing really good in classes and had a lot of, lot of untreated trauma that made me fail in wrestling school. I don't do good with getting yelled at. And that was something because of my dad, because of my mom. My mom always made me afraid of my father. Like I grew up with her always saying, oh, well, don't do this because your father, this, this, and this, and just made up all these lies about him to make me terrified of him. So when I tore my shoulder, I'll never forget the day that I came back um, from, from the hospital after surgery. My dad just looks me right in the eye. He's like, I told you it was going to happen. No support, not how did the surgery go, not how are you, nothing. And um, for everybody who knows my story, Sean, you, you know my story as well as anybody who's in the group knows how how much of a narcissistic human being my mom is and my dad is just very emotionally numb to like anything like, like i can't have conversations with him about a lot of things but my mom sold me this whole book of lies saying how great new jersey was going to be um and that i could save up money and you know just basically build a foundation you know find that stability and security that i've been aching for basically my entire life because I've never had security. I never had stability. So I moved up to New Jersey. Um, I call it running away now that I can process it properly. Um, I never wanted to call it that because I thought it was just me pressing the reset button. It was me running away from trauma that wasn't treated. So a couple months go by everything, you know, everything's pretty content in Jersey with my mom. Um, and then she falls back into her, uh, falls back into her narcissistic ways. And I'm starting to have to pay, you know, half, half of all the bills, which, you know, as an adult, you pay the bills, whatever, right. That's perfectly fine. But it was getting to the point where my mom was taking like 90% of my money. 
and overcharging me for, for a basement. So I remember, remember it like it was yesterday. It's firmly burned into my brain. Sitting there on my bed, uh, I'm pretty sure I was playing my PlayStation at the time. Mom came downstairs and she just started screaming, like for no reason, no reason at all. Three straight hours, I took every word, every insult, everything that she said to me, I just internalized and just took it. I didn't walk away. I didn't react i didn't respond nothing and i remember after that day i i wrote a suicide note on facebook and when i wrote it i didn't press post yet but when i wrote it i was like why are you doing this why why are you at this point why did you let your mom get you to this point again you know you've been doing so good for all these years and and everything else, and you don't want to do this. I press post, and five minutes later, I rethink it, and I and I deleted it. Um, an hour goes by, and two people reached out to me. One was my tattoo artist, uh, Rochelle, who she said, hey, I just want you to know that I saw your Facebook post, and I saw that you deleted it, and I just want you to know that I'm here, and you don't have to go through this alone. Second person that reached out to me was uh, was my brother Santi. He, much like yourself, Derek, very very big with God, very big relationship with God, and he walked me through everything that I was feeling and just wanting to see me do better and wanting to see that progress and growth. So I uh, went to go to therapy, and. First two sessions, I couldn't look at my therapist in the eyes. I was crying both sessions. And just, I just couldn't process anything that I was feeling. So after those two sessions um, that I got all those emotions out, um, you know, we, we talked through the suicide attempt. We talked through the self-harming and just she helped me find that light in myself that I didn't know existed. Um, she helped me discover that inner child that was just bruised and beaten to almost death that needed to heal, that needed protection. And she woke that light uh, inside of me. And I basically came to the decision of uh, needing to leave Jersey and getting away from my mom because my mom, and I told my therapist this, my mom was going to drive me to suicide. And it wasn't out of attention. It wasn't out of, uh, I want to be checked in somewhere. It was, I firmly believe she was going to bring me to that point. So coming back down to Florida, uh, first conversation I had with my, my grandparents who were notoriously judgmental uh, throughout my entire life, um, just always judging my appearance, so judging the music I listened to, you know, just everything about me. My grandfather said to me, I didn't know what to expect when you came back. And it kind of hit me like really hard because just like, I expected a little more support coming back because of he knows how bad uh, he knows how bad my mom is and just kind of like a backhand. It's just like, oh, I didn't know what to expect you coming back down to Florida. So I started a job. Um, 
it was just an AC job, very low paying. I just kind of, you know, trying to pay bills that I could. And then I finally got into tech data, uh, which is where I'm at now. And I sought out my first therapist since I left New Jersey. She was awful um, to our conversation earlier. First session that I had with her, she didn't write anything down. Uh, she didn't talk me through any of my emotions, nothing. Second session we had, same thing, except I had my first anxiety attack. Um, I was living at my grandma's house because my dad hadn't paid the water bill. And first thing that she says, oh, well, would you take pills? Like, I was just kind of in the back of my head, like it, it threw me off of what I was feeling and just kind of like, no, I, you know, no disrespect to anybody who takes pills for their mental health. Cause you know, there are some people that need it. I just told her, I just need someone to listen to. I, I don't want pills thrown at me like our first five minutes of the session. And, and I remember right in the middle of my anxiety attack, she cuts me off and says, uh, that's all the time we have mid sentence, uh, just sitting there in tears. Uh, I couldn't drive because I, my hands were shaking so bad. And she basically kicked me to the curb and said that, uh, you know, contact this number tomorrow. Uh, I'm all booked up for the next couple of weeks. Like didn't show any compassion for anything I was going through. So that was my perception on therapy for a little while. Cause it's just like, what the hell am I supposed to do? Because I tried the therapist in Florida and she was horrible. And I just, I gave up on myself. Um, and funny enough, um, a NAMI representative came to our job and I asked him after, after everybody left, because uh, I was kind of still uncomfortable talking about anything I was going through. And I said, Hey man, like I had a really bad experience with a therapist. How do I go about looking for one? Um, and, you know, he's like, the first thing that you want to do in every, every kind of therapist is just ask questions, what they cover, what, um, what they'll help you with. And, you know, just anything specific that you want to know, make sure you ask those questions. That's when I met Jess, um, who I have now. It's been almost three years and she's the most amazing therapist I've ever met in my life. Uh, right before I met her, um, somebody who I met uh, was very close to my heart, Amy. Um, she was one of the first women that I've met that I could actually like have conversations with. You know, we shared sunset pictures with each other all the time and just kind of, you know, try to get each other through. Little did I know how sick she was. Um, she went into surgery, didn't come out. And then the pandemic happened. And I couldn't, you know, we, we couldn't see a body because of the pandemic and that whole fiasco happened. Um, the year after that, Santi passed away. And Santi to me was the reason. I, I mean, I know there's, there's willpower, of course, but he is the, the reason that I've made it to today. He's the reason that I keep pushing forward and doing all that I do because I started the, the mental health movement page on Facebook because of him and started the podcast right, right after he passed away. And if, if there's one thing about my story that I can share with anybody is that healing is possible no matter what part of trauma you're in and that I want to echo Derek's point too that there's always hope 
in places that you can't see. Um, I was supposed to be just another number, just another statistic on whatever website you find suicide numbers on. And I, I'm glad that I'm here today and being able to share, uh, you know, a, a summary of my story with people and be here with you guys and share a piece of myself because there, there's a lot that so many go through that I went through. I don't want to see that happen to anybody else. So thank you for uh, allowing me to share what little um, summary that I had. Thank you for sharing, brother, from both of y'all. Thank y'all. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Appreciate you, bro. Yeah, thank you, Jen. You're one of the strongest people I know. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, y'all both are. Y'all are, man, your resilience and your strength. Listen, man, that gives me hope, too. It, it just, it, it, it puts a smile on my face. It puts a smile on my face because y'all y'all got works too. Y'all working right now. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I'm just honored to be here. Really am with you brothers and sisters. We're grateful to have you here with us, man. Absolutely. So Chris, I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked Derek. Sean, I'm going to ask you too, because I love asking people this question. Um, so same thing I asked Derek. What like was the turning point of your life and where did you like was it when you started finding hope and where did you find hope from was it when you first met your therapist or earlier than that maybe so the first time that i found hope was my very first therapist uh darlie jacobs and i'll never forget her um in new jersey was she helped me connect to music in a way that i've never connected with music before she showed me a different ways of looking at music to express myself in ways that maybe words couldn't possibly express um she helped me discover what boundaries were um she helped me find that light within myself so i'd probably say about 20 2017 2018 before i came back down to florida is when uh i think the turning point in my life began How about you, how about you, Sean? I'd have to say, well, there's a lot of times in my life where I had hope and where where there was a little light shining through the cracks. Uh, one of the times was when I I met my music therapist. I never told you guys about this. I didn't share this in my story, but I did music therapy as a form of my recovery from my TBI, um, where I would go into a room, learn an instrument, and play. But my music therapist went from being my therapist to being my friend. And I was able to talk to her about real life shit. I mean, we would, at the end of, at the end of our session, she would keep me in there for an hour and I wouldn't even touch an instrument, dude. I would just sit there and process shit. And she seen me at my worst. She came and she seen me when I was an outpatient because, or when I was an inpatient, because the room where we did our classes was right next to the music therapy room. So she would pull me out and talk to me and, and she, she, she was one of the people that I, I regard with the utmost respect ever. And, um, so that was one of them. And then, you know, the, the faith in humanity, when I went to vet court, um, I felt like I had nothing left, dude. I felt like I had lost everything and, 
just the whole treatment team that I had there and sat in front of me and said, dude, it's going to be, it's going to be rough, but, but it's going to be worth it in the end. That was, that's, that's another thing that gave me hope. So I want to ask y'all because um, it seems like for Sean and Chris, you found like a lot of inspiration and hope through music therapy. But for Derek, you said it was through your faith. So I want to ask you guys, <clears throat> how does somebody like go about finding something similar to those? Because I know, you know, everybody's going to have something that gives them hope. How does somebody go about finding that for them personally? Everybody's different, right? We're all different, right? Chris found inspiration through music. Derek found inspiration through through God. Um, I found inspiration in other things. You got to find what works for you, and you got to hold on to it like, like it's like it's your last dying breath. Even if even if everything else in your life falls to shit and it goes away, you got that one thing that's going to keep you coming back, no matter what it is. Yeah, I agree with Sean. Uh, just whatever works for you. I mean, you know, besides music, I had movies to crawl into. You know, I every conversation I have with people, my brain is like wired to like pick up one word or like maybe one phrase. I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this movie. And I quote movies and cartoons like nobody's business. <laughs> like sometimes I feel insane. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, and just comedy was always something that resonated in my in my brain you know just any kind of movies that i could dig into and i could sit there and quote um same with music you know music uh, obviously was really big for me uh, i crawled really hard into and no pun intended i crawled really hard into lincoln park's music um you know they got me through some of the darkest times in my life because Music heard me before my parents heard me. You know, they helped raise me. My parents, yeah, they provided for me and kept the roof over my house, but there was no stability. There was no security. There was, you know, dad uh, just not being able to process really anything from an emotional level. And then you have a narcissistic mom who tells you that you're the problem all the time. So, you know, like Sean said, it, it's different for everybody. You just got to find what works for you. There's no wrong answer in coping. Um, purpose. Like, what is a positive purpose? What is, what is is something that can get you outside of yourself? Humor, laughter, funny, comedy is definitely... It's, 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 I need that, too. As my faith, of course, but I need that, that laughter, that humor that 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 silliness that goofiness just to be like because it's very hard to laugh and frown at the same time you start you you look you look weird <laughs> <laughs> it looks like you it's hard but <laughs> it's hard i don't want to laugh <laughs> you just look you just look a little different a little, a little weird um i just feel like they can't occupy the same space at the same time so laughter for me is definitely huge i love my music keep my faith and that's the purpose service like doing this is being outside of myself just being of service being being able to give back like being here doing this with y'all like 
but it, it is different for everyone. But long as it's positive and 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 it's positive, it's positive, it's positive. I just want to stress positive, positive resources, positive coping, positive change, just helping you grow. Um and, and purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And service. Just just being outside of yourself. Yeah. I think one other thing is like surrounding yourself with like-minded people that when you're down, they can pick you up. And when they're down, you can pick them up. Right. Cause there's too much, there's too much of the, in the world where we see somebody down and we're like, they got it. They're good. But you surround yourself with people, like-minded people that are on the same path, maybe not the same path, walking down the road. You, you, you've got a partner, you, you got a partner in crime per se. You know, and you got you got a tribe, and that's what this whole recovery thing is about. It's a tribe, and I'm I'm your I'm your local bald Viking. So I have a question for y'all. Um, like I said earlier, like one thing for me was like just opening up and asking for help. So how do y'all recommend people? Because you know how like let's say like I'm going through something, and somebody just sees that, and they let's say they send me a text, "Hey man, you alright? How you doing?" I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm fine. Don't worry about it, man. It's, it's no, no worries. I don't want to bother you. How does somebody get over that? Because I think that is the hardest thing to do when it comes to, you know, starting to get better. It's called the the gift of desperation. Wanting it so goddamn bad. that Sorry about my language. Sorry about the GD. Derek, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll try to refrain from that. You got to want it so bad that nothing else matters. I mean, that's what it was for me. I, I don't know about anything else, about you guys, but for me, like nothing else mattered. I needed some help. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, look, dude, I need help. I am going to drop everything I'm doing and I'm gonna turn to that person. That person gets my full attention. Cause they, they got to that what point. Sorry, Sean, I made it cut you off, bro. I did it again. I did it again. He was just like he was just like that. You know, you know. I told you it was gonna I happen. Love it. Self fulfilling prophecy. You're good. I'm done. <laughs> I, I was, I was just gonna say, I think one of the biggest uh, misconceptions of just like the stigma of mental health is so many people don't know what it means to be there for somebody. They assume it's just like, okay, you got all this going on. Let me offer my unsolicited advice. Most people like myself who have ever been going through anything has been alone. You know, most of, most of the things I struggled with were alone. And when I was in Jersey, I was completely alone. That was the hardest time of my life was attempting to take my life and having no support whatsoever. And when you finally have somebody who sees you and validates what you're going through, you know, that, and that's what being there for somebody means is validating somebody's experience and not giving advice, but more so trying to, Give them a perception like, okay, you're feeling this. Is it because of this? Well, instead of thinking of that way, 
think of it as another season you're going through, you know, just try to uh, not give him advice, like just be an ear, be a shoulder for somebody, you know, and I feel so many people just fall into that. Listen to respond and not listen to understand trap. Yep. I, I agree with it. I agree with all the, everything that y'all said. Um, yeah. The desperation. Absolutely. The, the, like Sean said, or the someone, Hey, we can just sit. We ain't got to say anything. We can just sit. You, whenever you ready, I'm right here. Some people just want you to listen and, and, and just be there. Like I'm here. I know you need me. I'm here. I'm going to sit right here. Or let's just, let's just watch a movie or let's put a, play a puzzle. Do you want to play a puzzle? Do you want to play a game? Do you want to go for a walk? Whatever you need, I'm here. And people be like, you, 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 once you do that, people be like, you know what, man? Yeah. I've been going through it. Like, and they'll open up, you know? Um, and it's just, I believe sometimes you just got to put your pride aside, especially as men, because of this men mental health um, discussion that we're having as men, we have to be like, again, I think it goes back to what Sean said, that desperation, like I'm putting my pride aside. I need to pick up the phone. I need to call Chris. I need to call Sean. I need to call Trent. I need to be like, Hey brother, I'm not okay. Um, yeah, man, you got, you got a minute, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Can I say something? Yes. Yeah, uh, Trent, thank you for hosting this. It's been a good time. Sean, Derek, brothers in arms. I'm actually shocked that I'm not the only one. I thought military guys, oh, just suck it up, deal with it. But I'm glad there's others out there that are proceeding. But as far as like communicating, having that person to talk to, Chris, you know more than I do. I'm pretty sure I've called you multiple times at some unreasonable time in the morning. Two, three o'clock in the morning. You're sleeping. I call you up. I'm sleeping. Yeah, I need to talk. And you'd wake up and you'd talk, you talk. we'd talk for an hour or two. I'd say I'm sorry you go back to bed, but I appreciate you doing all that stuff for me, Chris. And I've said it before on the on I posted on your uh mental health movement page and i'll say it again i'm pretty sure you've helped me more than my one of my therapists va doesn't really like it's took me a while to find my therapist that i'm with now but but until once i found my therapist it's all good but until then chris you've helped me through most of it until i found my therapist now and i'm glad to be friends with you and all that stuff but derek i i wrote i i Saved your guys' contacts. Derek, I'll probably text you and ask you some questions and stuff and future references with the uh, overseas things. With the, uh, like, process, how, like, how, how, because I'm still undergoing, like, processing with the uh, Lost Brothers. And, uh, yeah, so I'll definitely be in contact and, I'll have some questions and here and there. Absolutely, Michael. And thank you for your service too, brother. And thank you for being here. Oh yeah, I'm always, I will always support Chris.
he started this mental health movement and I was, he was like, Hey, go like my page. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm in, I'll support you. And then yeah, he'll just blow up my Facebook page and or feed and stuff. And I was like, and I started reading it after a while. I was like, oh, that makes sense. That Yeah. Okay. That I, I can relate to that. And then I started following him more and it's helped out a lot. And well, yeah, I got back. I had some problems with uh, my stuff to the point where I I was in the driveway and I attacked two of my friends, two police officers, and about four or five paramedics. That's what was there. But what I saw, it was side of a mountain, and I seen bad guys coming. I was fucking shit up. <laughs> they took me to some psychiatric facility. They evaluated me they had me on these meds i hated those meds they made me feel like my mind i couldn't finish my sentences i would start a sentence with one thing and then end it with another thing like hey derek what are we doing for dinner yeah so about that carburetor that you want me to change out like (laughs) my i couldn't finish like and then it would my mind would be like it would and it was from the meds it would like that's how it would be when i was on the meds and then the meds changed something else. And then my therapist, they've had me slowly weaning off of said meds. So currently right now, I'm not on any more meds. I'm definitely 100% better than what I was. I'm not perfect mental health wise, but not I'm definitely a lot better along in the process of healing. Because when, when, when that happened, that was like my trigger when all that stuff happened in the driveway and I was attacking people and all that stuff, that was my trigger. I was like, Oh shit. Cause before that it was, yeah, I'll just deal with it. Oh, I'll sleep. I don't go to the hospital. Eh, when I get hurt, eh, sleep it off. You'll be fine. I was dealing with it myself, but then something, I don't know what happened. Switch flipped. And that was the trigger. It's like, Oh shit, I need to get better. So I was like, just going with the process, doing like taking meds, doing therapy and all that stuff. And then I ran into the things that you guys were talking about earlier with like, oh, some therapists are only like doing it for the paycheck. I dealt with like two or three of those where it's like, I mean, but I didn't really mind because the VA was covering it. I, well, I wasn't fronting no bill. <laughs> so I was like, but I didn't know that that was a thing because I never went through any of that stuff. So I didn't know that that was, I thought that was just normal me being outside and not actually going through it before. So I didn't know people were actually doing that. And then I found my therapist currently that is different in a good way where it's like, Oh, this, this person's like relating and talking to me and actually like, isn't in this for the money kind of thing. Like that's the therapist I have now. Hey, uh, Michael. Michael, can I offer you a thought real quick? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Two things. Uh, I was on meds uh, during my suicide attempt and the meds that I was taking actually amplified those thoughts. I got off of them because it made me feel numb, right? You could have been like, hey, I shot your family. I'd be like, all right, man, like what gauge to use? That's good. Yeah, that's literally like, it was just. And then I would be like, it was like your body, like, no, you like your arm falls asleep. Mm-hmm. Your whole body. Yeah. Another side effects. I would shit my brains out 
Like, I don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah, they do that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> they they could have warned me. No one nope. Nope. When they first gave me the Sons of bitches. Man, when they first gave me the meds, they gave me, like, this thick page packet, this autobiography of what the med side effects are. I wasn't reading that. No. Yeah. And then after a while, after like two weeks, I finally flipped through it and read it. Damn. Shit your brains out. That's literally reduced sex drive. I was so upset with that one. Help. Help. I stopped reading it. I was like, I don't want to get. Oh man, I don't want to read this thing. What? All these damn side effects. The but second the one that was getting me was like the cloudiness. Like I couldn't sleep for a little bit. It took me a while. Like to the point where I couldn't sleep. I would have to get up in the morning. I still do to this day. I did this morning. I get up at four o'clock every morning. Do my workout. Take a like five ten minute nap. Get up for work. Push so hard at work where I'm physically exhausted. Come home, do some yard work till I'm exhausted, and then I pass out because if I'm not like physically exhausted, I can't like fall asleep. Because then like bad dreams and all that stuff happens and all that stuff. So it's like I just push myself physically beyond my limits each day just so I can get to sleep, get up and do it all over again. Yeah, you know, like that's it's just a process, and I'm getting better with it. I mean, Chris knows me. Like, I still drink, I, but it's a my drinking now currently is a lot. Like, I'm slowly. I can't cut off cold turkey for some reason, but my drinking now, it's still me drinking, but it's a lot better than the drinking I used to be, where it was like. A couple bottles and a couple cases of beer. Now it's more of like just a few beers here and there. Yeah, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna tell somebody that that they have a problem because my problem is not their problem. You know what I mean? Like I'm not gonna sit here and say you have a problem drinking. That's a youth you you know. Um, so oh yeah, no, are, I know I have a problem with drinking. I'm so it's, and I realized that in the like, and it's gotten like. I'm slowly and slowly weaning down on wh- how much I drink and what I drink, like when I drink, because yeah. it used to be like an everyday thing. Mm-hmm. Now it's more of like special occasions, weekends, or something like that. Yeah, and not as like the quantity yeah. isn't as much as, anymore. So that's gotten better too. There's there's a a, a trauma form of therapy called EMDR. I don't know if you've looked into that or not. No, I have not. Hold on. Let, me get, let me get my pen and paper out. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot of therapists around the country that do it. And um, it's helped out just about every single person that I know that has gone through it. Yes, damn it. I lost my pen. <laughs> it's around here somewhere. Hey, it'll be, it'll be in the chat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. is it? Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's called EMDR, and so essentially, it's it it helps with trauma responses. It helps with um, triggers and stuff like that. So um, it, that's just a thought. I'm not, you know, telling you you have to do it, but I know that it's helped out a lot of people that have gone through it. Uh, what is it? There's this uh, 
like breathing technique that I learned recently where it's like, and even like deep sea free, uh, free divers. Yeah. They'll mm-hmm. do it to uh, release that excess carbon dioxide in their lungs. Mm-hmm. But it also releases like, it helps relieve like stress, stress relief. Yeah. Where it's like they completely inhale. Yeah. And then take a, as much as they want. And then, and then take, take a second one. Sharp, yeah. Yep. Sharp breath. Yep. And that expands those pockets in your lungs. And then you do a slow exhale and yep. it releases all that carbon dioxide. Absolutely. It works. It works. Oh, oh 100%. I've been doing that for the last three days, man. I'm just walking around the job site smiling as hell. <laughs> smiling all day. Don't care. But EMDR, is that like an acronym for something? Yes. Yes. Someone in the military came up with that then. They love their they love their number or letters. EMDR. E M D R. Okay. Thank you for that. What does that stand for? EMDR? Uh, uh eye movement response directed, I think. Let me double check. But essentially it works with our rapid eye movements. Okay. I'll put it in the chat what it what it stands for. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. And again, thank you, uh, Trent, Chris, Sean, Derek. Thank you all for being here and hosting this thing and putting this on. Absolutely. Yeah, and definitely reach out. Please do. Please do, brother. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure as soon as all this is done, me and Chris are going to hop on the game here in a minute. (laughs) 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 And then we're going to yell at each other for for not camping or not getting a position and also losing a game or something like that. Eye movement, um, desensitization and um, reprocessing. Reprocessing. Yep. All right. Yeah. I'll check that out. Sure. Michael, thank you for being here. Um, thank you for your service. Also. Um, I appreciate thanks for the support and thanks for speaking up and telling us a little bit about your story. Oh, anytime. Um, we are getting close to running out of time. So I wanted to just ask these gentlemen to, uh, do a little self plug. Uh, if you guys want to share like your podcast or social media, anything, um, you can put it in the chat and as well as announce it that way. Um, everybody will know. Uh, I'll go first. Um, yeah, I'll go first real no, quick. Go ahead, uh, go ahead, okay. Um, April, I mean, August 8th will be the debut of Play the Tape podcast. Um, I'm working on my website, I'm writing my book. I am trying to, um, it's a podcast similar to this one where it is a platform of advocacy, support, and um, community for people with mental health, substance use, and recovery. What we do is we interview um all types of people from professionals to mothers to family members who've been impacted by people with mental health and substance use. And we introduce people um, who have mental health uh, challenges and substance disorder. Um, That will be um, uh, the first episode will be debuting August 8th. And there will be episode every week. The first season will start August 8th and there'll be is 10 episodes and uh, I'll be dropping one every Tuesday. The first episode will be August 8th. It'll be my story. And um, like I said, like again, um, websites coming, books are coming. Uh, it's, it's, 
I'm, I'm excited about what where I'm at. And you'll see some familiar faces up here, too, um, on, on my podcast, uh, because there, there's the stories of experience, strength and hope and the testimonies need to be shared. Um, and I always let people know the reason that we do this. The reason that I do this is because there are people in that pit and we jump down in that pit with you because we know the way out. So. I just wanted to share that real quick. And um, um, Instagram is play the tape 88. Um, uh, Facebook, Derek Fields. Uh, I'm working on a TikTok. And uh, so, yeah, that's me. If you want to email me, play the tape 88 at gmail.com. If you want to send any emails or any suggestions for the show, if you want to be on the show, share your story, your experience, strength, and hope, you can. Um, if you know anybody you that wants to, they can. And I also offer anonymity. What's that? Anonymity is a spiritual principle that um, keeps you anonymous if you choose to be anonymous. Because I know some people with their work and the way their life is, they want to remain anonymous. I offer that on my platform. Just because you can't share your likeness or your face or your name doesn't mean your story can't be shared. So, yeah. Do you have... Uh... Like any resources? Uh, oh, yes. Um, there is NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, it is a nonprofit uh, with educational programs, um, different support groups that we ought that they offer. They have a support group, uh, two support groups um, in the Pitt County area. But look up your NAMI.org and look up your county to see if they have one or the um, nearest one. There is QPR, QPR's question, persuade, persuade, refer. That is a gateway training of suicide prevention. Also look at um, CIT training. What's that? It's um, training that law enforcement agencies get. So when there is a substance use or mental health crisis, they can call a CIT trained officer who knows how to de-escalate that situation, call mobile crisis unit or integrative services. That way they can get a licensed social worker, a licensed counselor out there. So we have more options than going in the back of the squad car and sitting in a jail cell. So and then there's also 988 instead of dialing 911. If there is a mental health or substance use crisis, you dial 988. Eight. They will send a CIT officer. They will send mobile crisis unit. They will send integrated family services. That way we have more than just a jail cell or sitting in the back of a police car with no resources and being triggered even more. So, and then there's, um, I still don't know how to pronounce it. Shamsha, Samsha, Smasha, you know, Samsha, that. That is a substance use and mental health organization too. Um, so many tools, so many resources out there for us. Um, um, so utilize them. They're, they're, for, they're for our, our utilization. So that's all I got. John, if you want to go. Okay. Uh, anyways, uh, you can find me on. You can find me in, in Facebook. You can find me. In, <laughs> I had to do it. I had to do it. <laughs> anyways, okay. You, time to be serious. You can laugh when you're angry. By the way, it sounds psychotic, but you can laugh. <laughs> anyway, anyways. Bye.
All right. If I can be serious for a moment, Lance Storm. Anyways, uh, you can find me on Facebook, Sean Young. Uh, I have my podcast page, Sitting with Sean. Uh, Instagram, Sitting with Sean. Uh, face or Twitter. I don't really do Twitter. I have one. I don't really use it. Um, you can find me on TikTok at the Beard of West Virginia WV uh, because I have the biggest beard in West Virginia. You hear me now? Anyways, uh, you can find me on uh, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Sitting with Sean. Uh, my podcast is recovery based. It at one point was one of two recovery based podcasts in Alaska, and now I moved. But Anyways, um, I I have about actually 65 re- episodes recorded now, and uh, I have some other uh, another project that is called Extraordinary, where I talk to normal people who live pretty cool lives and do really cool stuff. Uh, but my baby is Recover Out Loud, where we talk to people who are in recovery for mental health disorders or substance abuse disorders, and we talk about what it what it what it looked like what happened and where they're at now with their life. So thank you for letting me share. Or I will crush you. Um, I can't help it. So my podcast is uh, Voice for the Voiceless. Uh, I'm on YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. Um, my Instagram is Mental Health Movement Pod. And my TikTok is Fellow Traveler uh, MH mental health um and you can find the facebook group mental health movement um really big family uh safe space for anybody whoever needs it um you know mike's been in there sean's been in there derek if uh i'm gonna add you to that group too um if you have facebook um the podcast that i have just kind of talk about all the taboo subjects of mental health from men's mental health to social norms and interviewing authors who have uh, done books on mental health. Um, I'm going to have Sean on my podcast here soon and um, plenty of other guests uh, in the future as well. So thank you for allowing me to share and thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here today. Thank you guys. I really appreciate, I really appreciate all of you. Um, your stories are amazing, and uh, you guys really gave me inspiration today. I didn't really realize how much I needed this, even though I've already been on the road to recovery, but this is really nice for me because I feel like I've f- found some more people, and uh, that's a huge thing for me, just finding people I feel like I can rely on, and all you guys seem like amazing people. So I really appreciate y'all for coming on and sharing your stories. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it was, it was yeah, an thank honor. You, man. Thank you. Would love to do this again. Hell yeah. So, um, hearing all your guys' stories, sorry for interrupting, but I just want to say thank you so much. I really had a good time listening, and you know, I really appreciate everybody sharing their story. It was just really encouraging. We appreciate you, Victoria. Thank you. I love you too. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I'm gonna go ahead and stop the recording now, but, um, if you guys want to stay, leave, it's up, totally up to you. I set the meeting time for an hour after schedule uh, ending, just in case people wanted to stay behind and talk where it's a little bit more private and not recorded, but that's totally up to you guys. Um, so, yeah, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming out. Thank you.